Welcome, and thanks for listening to the New Life Christian Ministries podcast. If you'd like more information about New Life or for more podcasts and other media, go to newlifexn.org. Those of you who've been around for a while know it's a dangerous thing when I have been off for two weeks, haven't preached for two weeks in a row. It's usually uh, I preached three sermons that morning, and I tried not to preach one there. Um, but I'm very, very, very enthusiastic about this series, The Reason for God. We're dealing with some very difficult questions. In fact, today we're going to take on two of the questions you just saw on the screen head on. The first one is, if God is good, how can he allow so much suffering in the world? And the second one is, how can a good God send anyone to hell? Now, those are big questions. And, and again, just as Pastor Mark said a couple weeks ago, we could probably take a month on each of those themes. But we're going to talk about... Um, very, very specifically, how it is that these two things can happen, or can they happen? We're going to answer the questions. I, I really, when you leave here today, you should have an answer to both those questions. Um, we're going to put a take-home point up on the, on the screen, but not yet, because I want to tell you, for, if you're new here, every week our goal is to make one point clearly from the Word of God, so that we can go out and reflect on that point this coming week, pray about it, live it out in the week ahead, um, and, and if we do that 52 weeks out of the year, in 52 weeks, all of us who come will be clearer about what it means to know God and to follow His Son Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit in our daily lives. And I want to tell you, before you see this take-home point, most of you are going to disagree with it. When you see it, most of you are going to disagree with it. And the reason I know that is because we're Americans. And Americans love freedom. We love to go based on what our feelings feel. And we, we love to have this, uh, we, we call it freedom, but in our culture in the 21st century, it's become license. Freedom, uh, it means license in American society today. It doesn't exactly mean freedom, which is liberty uh, and tolerance, um, which is, you know, that's something that developed actually mostly in the Enlightenment period. We're going to talk about that a little bit this morning. But when I put it up on the screen, I guarantee you many of you are going to disagree. So here, let's go ahead and get it over with. God gives us what we want. God gives us what we want. Now, now some of you are going, are you crazy? I don't want people to starve to death in the world. I don't want there to be war and fighting. I don't want there to be sin. I don't want families breaking up. I don't, I don't want anything. How can you say God gives us what we want? Well, I have to put that in the context of the, uh, the biblical context from which I made that statement. And by the end of the message, I really hope that, that you all will agree with me that God gives us what we want. What we're going to do is we're going to turn, if you have your Bible or Bible app, we're going to turn this morning to the book of Romans, chapter 1. We're going to turn there at verse 16. Before we do that, let me tell you who wrote the book of Romans. A guy named the Apostle Paul. We call him the Apostle Paul. Uh, he was a Jew. He was a Jewish leader, actually, a Pharisee, very religious guy. And then he met Jesus personally, and his life was transformed. And so he wrote this letter to a group of people he had never met. Mostly, Paul wrote letters to churches that he had started. But in this case, he had never been to Rome. He had never met the Roman Christians. Most of the Roman Christians were Gentiles before they became Christians. That means they weren't Jews. And so what Paul was doing in the book of Romans, first he introduced himself, said who he was, and, you know, sort of said that he really hoped to meet his brothers and sisters there, and he wanted to visit with them so he could impart some teaching and so he could learn something. And then he said uh, that he wanted to share the good news with them personally. Now, what is good news? Well, from a biblical standpoint, the good news is very specific. The good news is this. There is a God who created everything in the universe. And that God, whenever he created the first couple of people, those people rebelled against him. 
And that's called sin when we rebel against God, we break God's will. And so at that point, you might think that an all-powerful God would have just taken out his flesh water and went, and that would have been the end of that, and he would have started over, but he didn't. God decided that he would continue to love his people even though they rejected him. And so throughout history, God has interacted with people, and never more clearly than 2,000 years ago when he came in the man Jesus Christ and became flesh. One of us lived a perfect life, and then he died on the cross, even though he was innocent, to pay the penalty for human sin, and he rose from the dead. Uh, and, and after that, he went back to heaven and he sent his spirit. That's the power of God, the presence of God, the reality of God in our very lives if we trust Jesus, Savior, and Lord. And we're going to live in his power and in his presence from now until he returns or until we go to be with him. And then we'll do that for eternity. That's the good news. And I need to tell you all of that because here's what it says in verse 16. For I, that's Paul, am not ashamed of the good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile. So Paul lived 20 centuries ago, which was many, many hundreds of years before the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment happened and started in about the 1700s in Europe and then traveled to the United States. And the Enlightenment was a period of time when people decided that instead of thinking about things about religion and faith and all that kind of stuff, we're going to examine the world from a standpoint of science, reason, philosophy, and we're going to basically make our, our lives reflect around what our brains can manufacture. And actually, some really good ideas came out of that period of time, two of which are liberty and tolerance. So out of that period of time, liberty and tolerance came to be developed, and yet Paul lived in this time hundreds of years, well, almost 2,000 years before that, 1,700 years before that, and he lived in a time that if you believed in the God of the universe who created everybody through his son Jesus Christ saved everybody, if you believed that in his world in which he lived, you could be put in prison, you could be beaten, and you could be executed. Nevertheless, Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel, even in that circumstance, because he knew then that it's the power of God, that it saves everyone who believes it. And when Paul said believes it, he and all the other New Testament writers who talked about believing, they weren't talking about an intellectual belief. They they weren't just talking about acknowledging the existence of this God. They weren't just talking about saying there was a guy named Jesus who lived and died, rose again, such. They mean that they put their trust, their life, their, the, the, the whole thing of their meaning and purpose of their life was wrapped up into Jesus. That's what he was talking about. And so he says, this good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. So if we want salvation and a righteous life, Paul tells us it, it's easy. No, it's not easy. It's simple. It's very hard, actually, to live that kind of life, but it's very simple to receive that kind of life. All you have to do is put all of your trust, all of your faith, all of your belief into Jesus Christ. And if you do that, your life will be transformed now and forever. And so when I said that the take-home point was God gives us what we want, if we want that, he'll give us that. If we want a new life, Jesus called this life so radically different that he called it being born again. Just as we are all born physically, Paul says, I mean, Jesus says we have to be born again spiritually. So there's a physical birth and there's a spiritual birth. And Jesus tells us everyone who believes in him, that is Jesus, will not perish. We won't die. We will physically die, but we won't spiritually die. We'll have a new life that lasts forever. 
And so this whole deal that Paul is talking about was first established by Jesus, and Paul and the other New Testament authors passed it on. A couple weeks ago when Pastor Mark was preaching, you might remember that he said he wasn't going to try to prove that God existed, because number one, you can't prove it. Uh, But number two, actually, he didn't say this, but I'm saying this. The Bible assumes that God exists. It doesn't try to prove it. But you cannot prove scientifically that God exists or doesn't exist. And and what what Pastor Mark said rightly is that we have to believe. We have to have faith in him. And this passage is one where we learn about what that means to believe in Jesus or not to. Because he's going to talk a lot about what happens when we reject the truth. When we reject Jesus Christ. And so the thing that I want us to understand. We live in a culture that has had 300 years plus of the enlightenment. And so what has happened in that period of time is. We have come to believe. Note that word. Believe. That we are more reasonable than we were before the 300 years happened. And especially today. Atheists today think that they are more reasonable than everybody else. They're not. And, and that the purpose of this series has been and is and will be for the next couple of weeks to show us that it's not unreasonable to believe that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. In fact, a long time ago, when I was still in my 20s, which is getting to be a longer and longer time ago, I learned a definition of faith that goes like this. Faith is an informed trust, not a nice gullibility. You see, there are people today who think at best it's naive to be a Christian at worst, it's just gullible. I mean, you have to be sort of gullible. you got to check your brain at the door if you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It's just a matter of feelings and faith. It has no demonstration in, in reality. But what we've been discovering through the course of this series so far is back on Easter Day, we talked about the resurrection and how it's very, very reasonable to accept that Jesus rose from the dead because of all the evidence. I can't prove it in a laboratory you know, experiment, but we can definitely say the evidence is clear. And then a couple weeks ago, Pastor Mark talked about the thumbprints of God. Remember that? He said in creation, there are these thumbprints that just as a potter leaves thumbprints or fingerprints on the creation that they make, so God has left thumbprints. And if you read in the book, The Reason for God, there's 119 or something of these thumbprints. And it's like uh, if, if we compared the universe to a machine, and the machine had 119 dials that were set from 0 to 100, like 87, 27, 32, all of these numbers, and if any one of those 119 dials was turned to a number that was two or three off from that, the universe couldn't exist. <laughs> That's a pretty, pretty incredible fine-tuning. And so the idea is that if the universe is so finely tuned, there must have been a tuner. We're going to talk a little bit about that uh, down the road whenever we get a couple more verses ahead. But the, the other thing that we, we saw last week when Pastor Lenaris from Cuba, if you were here last week, we had Pastor Lenaris here and his wife Barbara was standing there. Lenaris grew up as an atheist. He grew up in a culture where atheism is the norm. And yet when he was a young adult, his wife actually helped him to come to follow Jesus. What you may or may not know from the story he told us last week is that six months before his wife died on an operating table, uh, he had been led to the Lord by her. And six months later, when she lay dead on the operating table, he prayed in the name of Jesus and she came back to life. Now that's pretty substantial um, evidence that there's some power behind this belief system that we have in Jesus Christ. So what Paul says next is this. God shows 
His anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. So how could a good God allow suffering in the world? How could a good God send anyone to hell? Paul starts off with the answer, the the beginning of the answer of why there's suffering and why people can go to hell is because God is good. God is righteous and God is just. And so he created a, a good and righteous and just earth for us to live on. And he expected us to live that way. And when we do not live that way, um, God gets angry. Uh, rightly so. Just as whenever we see somebody, uh, you know, somebody that we know. Let's just say, just use this as an example. Somebody is married and, and the husband is abusing, beating the wife. We say, that's wrong. We need to stop that. And we all know that we do need to stop that. That's wrong. And there's hundreds of things that we could list that we would say, if, if, you know, if, uh, if somebody murders somebody, we say, that's wrong. And so God is perfectly just and perfectly good. And so what he says is, this cannot go on. And so therefore, God is angry um, at the wickedness of people. It, it says it right there. And we want... Uh, when we are in that state of wickedness, and we all are, we're born into it because Adam and Eve sinned, and so it's just been sort of passed on to all of us, and we're born into that state, and we think sinfully until something happens. We're going to talk about that. So Paul continues with this statement, sort of following along the same line of logic. He says, For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. That Through everything God made, they can clearly see His invisible qualities, His eternal power, and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Look, look at that again. What is Paul saying here? He's saying, ever since God created, people have been able to see the sky and the earth. This morning, I was standing outside, and I saw this bright thing in the sky. I hadn't seen it for a while. Um, but, but it was amazing. I thought, wow, there, somebody must have created that. You know, and, and, and as I was thinking about that, what Paul said comes home to me. When we see a creation, we assume a creator. And, and that's, that's actually scientific. Do you know that? Scientists, it's sort of interesting. Modern scientists say that we should believe from science, notice it's believe from science, that there's no creator. But science is the study of cause and effects. Good science would say that if there's a creation, there must be a creator. In fact, I was talking to an atheist one time, and I took off my watch, and I, I laid it on the, the table in front of him. He was sitting at a chair, and I was sitting here on the table here. And I said, you see that watch? One morning, I woke up, and I went into the bathroom, and there in my bathroom sink was this watch. It had never uh, before in the history of the universe existed, but all of a sudden, it just appeared uh, out of nothing. Do you believe that? And he said, well, I believe that you believe that. And I said, why would I believe that? That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I said, the reason this watch exists is because my dad bought it for me when I graduated, got my doctorate. My dad bought this watch for me. There's a company named Seiko, and apparently they have designers who design watches, and they have assemblers who assemble the watches. The reason the watch exists is because there's a watchmaker. And and what Paul says is the reason the creation exists is because there's a creator. And it's so obvious that when there's something that's created, there's a creator. And, and, and as I said, science is the study of cause and effects. And what the problem with science is, we don't know what the cause is of the creation. So instead of, because they've already said there can't be any supernatural stuff, that's what science, because they can't observe it so it doesn't exist, that's a fall- fallacy right there. Just because you can't observe something in, in a scientific laboratory doesn't mean it doesn't exist, it just means you can't observe it. The difference between good science and bad science 
is bad science tries to, to basically assume things you can't assume from the rules of science. Good science just says when there's an effect, there's a cause. And Paul assumed something. He anticipated something, I should say, that was going to come up. Have you ever asked this question, who created God? Well, well, Paul sort of, in a way, addresses it here. Nobody created God. God was always there. So how do I know that? By faith. And you go, oh, that's a cop-out. No, it's not a cop-out. Because when a scientist says the whatever caused the universe to come into existence, random chance plus random chance, add nothing times nothing, equals everything. That's a bad equation. It's not a good equation. So anyway, Paul is saying that we all know, even if we haven't heard about Jesus, we all know that there's a God. It's evident just by the fact that this whole thing exists. And in our hearts, if we're honest, I think almost all of us in the room would agree with that. So then Paul goes on and he says, yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. Paul wrote those words 2,000 years ago, but they're as fresh as an argument between a Christian and an atheist today. And the interesting thing is, 2,000 years ago, what people worshiped were things that looked like people and animals, birds, animals, and reptiles, idols. And people still do that in the world. In a lot of places around the world, people are still worshiping those kind of things. But today here in America and other advanced civilizations, what we worship is ideas. We create ideas to explain the unexplainable, and then we worship them. And we call that reason. It's just religion wrapped up in a different package. So it says here, Paul says, that when their minds were darkened and they became confused, they weren't as smart as they thought they were. And that's the thing. We think we live in an age of reason, an age when, when we are a little farther along than everybody else. The truth of the matter is we can just transmit our silly ideas faster than we used to be able to 2,000 years ago or 300 years ago. So look what happened as a result of this downward spiral. We're in a downward spiral where people have rejected God, and so their minds are confused, and it says this, So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired, and as a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshipped and served the things God created instead of the Creator Himself who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. Even as Paul is telling us about all this downward spiral and how we all have gone away from the truth, he can't help but worship because he starts thinking about the Creator and about creation and he goes, He's worthy of eternal praise. Amen. In the middle of this, this little dialogue, or monologue, I guess you'd call it, in this oratory that Paul has, about where we are headed as people because we've rejected God, he stops to worship God. And that's what reasonable people do when we recognize there's somebody greater than ourselves. We pause to give him glory and praise. And and the thing is, if we don't worship God, God will let us do whatever we want. He'll give us whatever we want. And that's what Paul says next. He says, that's why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men, and as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. Now, here's the thing. Modern readers go look at that, and, and they, they, they translate what's in our day back into 2,000 years ago, and they say, well, Paul was a homophobe. 
Paul was a conservative religious person. And so he said that homosexual practice was a sin because he, he didn't understand. He wasn't enlightened as we are. And here's the truth. Ancient Rome is so similar to modern America, it isn't even funny. They were doing exactly the same kind of things that we're doing today. And here's, here's why they were doing it. Because they, they let go of reason and, and they just started doing what they wanted to do. And God will let us do what we want. But God has established in the order of creation the natural function. How could you have an unnatural function if you don't have a natural one? The natural function is simply this. A man will leave his father and mother, cling to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That's what God ordered in creation in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. But we have rejected that. And the Romans had rejected that 2,000 years ago. And Paul was saying, you know, this is what happens when we think that we are the source of truth. And we reject the actual source of truth. And, and Paul gets a, a down into the mundane here. In the very last explanation, he says this. Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that should never be done. Now, you're expecting something really, really bad after what you just read, right? Here's what he says. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. Whoa, that doesn't sound so bad compared to the other stuff. But Paul's making it clear. All this stuff is bad. They are backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning, and they disobey their parents. They refuse to understand, break their promises, are heartless, and have no mercy. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. Notice that throughout this whole writing, Paul has been talking about they. They have uh, you know, darkened minds. They did these things. They, they turned you know, their, their lives over to whatever they, they wanted to do. Well, who's they? This is where you're not going to like this either. They is we. <laughs> they is we, you and I, until, until we trust Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Because you see, God gives us what we want. Why is there so much suffering in the world? Because when we decide to go down that path, that, that death spiral, which literally is a death spiral physically and spiritually, and do all kinds of sin, God says, okay, go ahead. I'll give you what you want. And, and, and we say, wait a minute. You, you mean to say that God wants us to sin? God wants us to do all these things? No, he doesn't want us to do all these things. But God gives us what we want. And, and so when one of those people... And when I say those people, remember, it's all of us until Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior of our lives. And even afterwards, we don't do the perfect thing that we know we ought to do all the time. So sometimes, even as followers of Jesus, we do terrible things. And there is what in military terms is called collateral damage. You know how in a war, you know, they put off a bomb and it blows up the headquarters of the enemy, but it also blows up the entire block around and all these civilians get hurt. And that's exactly what happens when we sin. That's exactly what happens when human beings do this, this thing that God, God lets us do. When we sin, there is always collateral damage. And you might say, well, what I do, is it's not that bad of a sin. It doesn't hurt anybody. Yes, it does. As soon as we sin, there's always collateral damage. And as we think about it, the worst thing that can happen to a follower of Jesus, in, in other words, we've trusted Jesus as our Savior and Lord, we've been born again, the worst thing that can happen is that we have to deal with the consequences of sin, either ours or somebody else's, for a minute, a, an hour, a day, a year, a, a decade, a, or our whole lifetime in some cases, we, it follows after us, but ultimately sin cannot 
take the life away from a person who is in Jesus Christ. Paul actually would say this later. He'd say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In other words, as long as we live, even when we have to suffer, that's a good life because ultimately we're going to be with God forever. And when other people choose to sin, God will allow us to do that. And he gives us what we want. And so that brings up the next thing. The good news is there's also collateral blessing. Because I think you're sitting there going, wow, I might as well just go home and you know, give up. Because if that's the way it is, but there's collateral blessing. When a person trusts Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, born again, what happens is the Holy Spirit comes in. And then our lives, just as the sinful life has you know, ripple effects, so does a life in Jesus Christ have ripple effects. In your life, in my life, if Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord, Jesus said, we're salt and light. What does light do? It takes away darkness. It helps it so people can see. And then salt preserves, heals, just adds flavor to life. You know, the sad thing is the world thinks that Christians are dull and boring and stupid. Right? And they think that they're whatever. I don't know. Because I haven't been a non-Christian for a really long time. But the truth is sometimes they're right. Sometimes we are dull and boring and stupid, and we shouldn't be. We should not just check our brains at the door because we're followers of Jesus Christ. Some people in the room who are not believers might be thinking, the reason that you talk this way is because you haven't thought it through. No, the reason I talk this way is because I have thought it through. I've studied philosophy and religion and theology and all those kind of things, and I got the letters after my name to prove it. And all of that doesn't matter. What matters, what Paul says... What Jesus says, that's really what matters, is that God is going to give us what we want in our lives. And if we want to live a life that makes a difference, we want to make, live a life that's going to add value, not just for now, but forever. There's only one way to do that. It's through Jesus Christ. And so Paul tells us God's going to give us what we want. And here's the thing. Let's answer that second question. The first question of why is there suffering in the world? Because God gives us what we want. And the people that want to, you know, want to indulge in sin, God lets them. And the collateral damage happens. And it might not be an answer that satisfies you, but it's the truth. And the only way to keep that from happening is for as many of us as possible to live our lives in a way that makes other people want to live that kind of life too. So what about hell? Does a loving God send people to hell? No, of course not. How could a loving God send people to hell? But remember, he does give us what we want. So if we reject him every day, every minute of every day for our whole lives, why would he make us come to heaven, a place where he's going to be worshipped and praised forever? If somebody rejects God or even the existence of God, why would that God who loves everybody force that person to come to a place where... <laughs> That person is going to spend eternity in the presence of somebody he denied the existence of for all of his earthly life. It makes no sense. So one day, God is going to come back. Jesus is coming back or we're going to die. And in that moment, only one of two options is going to occur. Either he's going to go, wow, there you are. You know, I've been waiting for you. I have this inheritance I've been going to give you forever and now you got it. Or he's going to say, oh, sorry. Okay, that's what you wanted. Okay, that's what you get. You wanted hell. I, I don't understand it, but I'm going to honor your choice. I'm going to honor your commitment. A and so then the person gets to be in hell forever. And people go, oh, but a loving God. No, a loving God has to do that. A loving God has to honor our commitments. Especially if he's just and good. And he is. All of those things. 
So here's the thing. Everybody, uh, after hearing that, they, most people say this. Well, what about the aborigine? The aborigine never heard about God. What's he going to do with that person? Well, a couple of things. Number one is remember back where it says everybody knows there's a God because of what's in creation, so everybody's without excuse. That's number one. Number two is this. What did Jesus tell us to do 2,000 years ago? Go tell everybody. So why haven't we? We've had 2,000 years to go tell everybody. If there's anybody who hasn't heard about Jesus, that's on us, not on him. You know, the, the bottom line is when we hear the word of God and believe it, no, I'm talking about intellectually. I'm talking about it goes from the brain into the heart, into the spirit, into the soul, into everything. And he becomes Lord and Savior of our lives. Then it, it, it's supposed to waken up something inside of us that will not allow somebody else to not hear about Jesus. And, and when that happens, some of us will go to our neighbor, which is a good thing. Some of us will go to our school, our workplace. That's a great thing. Some of us will go, you know, to Pittsburgh. That's an excellent thing. Some of us will go to weird places. You know, where there have people that eat raw meat and stuff because they haven't heard. I guess you, after you hear about Jesus, you can still eat raw meat, right? Sushi, that kind of thing. Okay. Um, but the bottom line is the people who haven't heard haven't heard because we haven't told them. It's our calling as followers of Jesus to do that. So Paul said, I am not ashamed of the good news. Why? Because it saves everybody who, who believes it. So why would we not want to share the good news? Because we've been reasoned out of it by our culture. Our culture has told us that we need to be tolerant. Do you know what tolerant really means? It means I put up with. I tolerated my little brother for a long, long time. Then I got to like him. <laughs> See, you, you tolerate somebody you don't like or you don't like their view or you disagree with them. You put up with it. But as Christians, we have to put up with it, get to put up with it in love. And we get to share the truth. And some people are going to respond and some people aren't. And God will give us what we want. And while we're waiting, the thing to do is to make sure that we don't let people tell us stuff that makes no sense. And just nod our heads and go, oh, that makes sense. No, it doesn't. This watch didn't show up on my sink one day. Somebody made it. This universe didn't show up one day. Somebody created it. And as we go out today, I'm going to give you a simple little commitment. Here it is. I will share what I know of God with others this week. So what do you know of God? What do you know of God? Do you know that he exists? Do you know that he created everything? Do you know that he has a son named Jesus who lived and died and rose again for us? And sent his Holy Spirit to live in us to have power? If, if you know that much, that's all you need to know. No, I'm not going to say stop there. I'm just going to say that's enough to tell somebody else about the new life, the good news, and, and to see transformation. So many times over the years, I've prayed to God, and, I, and here's been, you might have prayed this too. God, why do you let so much bad stuff happen? Why, why is all this stuff going on? And why, why aren't more people following you? And every time I, I start down that path, I, I, I almost hear God saying, I gave you the church 2,000 years ago. Jesus said the gates of hell are not going to prevail against my church. I mean, there's a body of believers worldwide who, who knows the living God of the universe by name and has been given the power of God in our lives. And, and so when I start to ask God why he doesn't do more, I always get the impression that he's saying, well, why don't you do more? That's a very good question. A reasonable person would think about that question and then they would do something about it. That's why the commitment is a call to action. Whatever we know of God, let's share it with somebody this week. Share it with a family member. Share it with somebody at school, somebody at work, some stranger. Now that could be awkward. 
Okay, and what I'm not saying is take your Bible out and pound somebody over the head with it this week. That is exactly the opposite of what I'm saying. What I'm saying is when somebody makes a comment that's unreasonable based on their faith in a system that makes no sense, that you could just say, well, did you ever really think? <laughs> you could, yeah, that's a whole sermon in itself. Did you ever really think? I think I'll have a sermon like that someday. Did you ever really think about what you believe? Or what you disbelieve. Have you ever seen the evidence for your position? Interesting thing. I just heard this this morning. I heard back in 2012, whenever the Massachusetts, was it Connecticut? The shooting in, in, in Connecticut. Okay. Every single one of those families had a funeral for their child. And we live in a secular society. When President Obama gave his speech, which was more like a sermon, he quoted the Bible. Because in times like that, there's really only one thing that makes sense. That there is a God who has a son whose name is Jesus. Who died and rose again and is coming in power. And if you want to make sense out of suffering, it starts with knowing Jesus as Savior and Lord. If you want to make sense out of how people could end up in hell, it starts with knowing that God doesn't want anybody to end up there. Jesus said that. It's not the will of your Father in heaven that even one should perish. And so as we go out of this place today, we have the opportunity to take the truth in love to everybody we meet. And for some, that might just be a smile. For others, it might be a conversation. Please don't make it into an argument. Because arguments don't usually bear fruit for the kingdom of God. But love and truth and evidence, I've seen it change people's lives changed mine, and it's changing mine every single day. I know it's changed many of yours. Let me close by saying this. If you have never trusted Jesus as your Savior and Lord, you've never looked at the evidence as clearly as maybe we've been doing during this series, if, if you've believed what you've been taught in school, if you're under 30 years of age, that there's more evidence, there's not. And, and, and how do I know? Well, by, by looking at the evidence... By realizing that faith is an informed trust, not a nice gullibility. And yes, we do have to take a step of faith. We do have to say, Jesus, I believe in you. And the moment we do that, Jesus says, we get a new life. And if you'd like that new life, you just have to say, Jesus, I, I want that new life. I, I want it. I want, I want to be born again. I want, I want to have your spirit in my life right now. Please come in and take over. I want to know I want to know you, the God of the universe, personally. I want the inheritance you have for me. And if you do that right now as we pray, your life will never be the same now and for eternity. Let's pray. God, I do thank you that you have given us so much evidence that you exist and so much evidence that you love us and so much evidence, God, that your son Jesus is the one way to life forever. I pray for everyone in the room who may have just for the very first time, ask you to come and be Lord and Savior in their lives. And I ask for all of us, God, that what, wherever we are on the spectrum of life and belief, that you would move us one step closer to you today, that we might be filled with your Spirit anew and afresh, and that we might go out there and live our lives in a way that bring you glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.